Hello and welcome to Africa Tech Summit Connects, sharing insights from across the African tech scene. Today's episode was recorded at Africa Tech Summit London. Good morning, everyone. First of all, I'm so delighted that this time around it's not December and we're not here in the cold as usual. So thanks, Andrew and Lauren, for that. Um, great to meet everybody. My name is Ankiru Owaje, and I run an advisory firm focused on helping startups in a near-term growth strategy. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about the business of payments. And if you think about a decade ago, payments fintech started to pave the way in really transforming the continent, building really vital infrastructure for the continent, where historically, even just paying someone in your neighboring country was near to impossible when it came to real time or without having extraordinary fees associated to it. Fast forward to today, payments fintechs represent the backbone of the continent, having created the foundation needed to help leapfrog Africa. Yet, there is still so much more to be done, and today we look back at the lessons learned and discuss existing challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. So joining me on stage is a wonderful panel of leaders in the payment space. So over to you for an introduction. Thanks. I guess I'm the shortest leader in the payment space. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew, for these chairs for giants. <laughs> so I'm Elizabeth Rossiello. I'm a founder and CEO of Asa Finance. Ten years ago, I started a company called Vitpasa in Nairobi, Kenya, which was either a great or a terrible idea. It was about ten years too early for digital currency payments. Um, we rebranded two years later, and now we count ourselves as one of the largest non-bank brokers on the continent for trading foreign exchange. And most importantly, when you create something in a frontier market, it's important that you build out the infrastructure. So actually, most of our business is the infrastructure, of course, cross-border payments, and then we trade on top. And today, we count some of the largest global players as our clients, as well as many fintechs in this room and some of the largest uh, traditional financial institutions, which we call TradFi, um, who are actually now finally 10 years later joining us fintechs, um, working and building towards the future. Awesome. Thank you. Solomon? Yeah, hi. Um, good morning, everyone. And I'm probably the youngest on the panel. Hey, watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so hi. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so yeah, um, so um, I'm, I'm Solomon. And 10 years ago, uh, I used to work for a security company. Um, we do payment card industry data security standards, and I used to do some ethical hacking and pen test. And then fast forward to 2015, um, I joined TMAP, now MoneyPoint, um, as a software engineer, but I was one of the founding members of the company. And then and over time, I've worked across like switching infrastructures, payment gateways, web payments, and um, um, a lot of other transaction processing systems. And we've built several financial solutions for banks and other fintech companies. And today we are providing business banking solutions to the last mile to merchants and businesses across board. So yeah, um, great to be here and looking forward to an awesome session. Hi everyone, you didn't mention uh, I'm pitching Money Point because it's a portfolio company, yes. uh, portfolio company of ours, yes. uh, reaching what uh, 350, 400,000 merchants today. No, I think we are like almost a million merchants now. It's not over a million merchants now. 
learned, I learned the best thing as an investor is always ask uh, uh, a question, put the wrong number so they can correct you. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi everyone, uh, my name is uh, Benga Jay and keeping it theme, I'm the only investor on the panel. I am a partner at QED Investors, uh, for people who don't know the room. Uh, QED is a global fintech, uh, uh, fintech VC firm headquartered in DC. Uh, we invest in only fintechs. We have, um, you know, I think about 220 active companies, uh, 22 unicorns, all in fintech across 13 countries. Um, so, you know, I think with fintech, we're like an, we're like a kid in a candy, we're like a kid in a candy store, uh, especially in Africa. Um, and we started to invest in Africa, joined sort of late 2021, and MoneyPoint was our first investment. We've made subsequent investments in uh, in a company called Flapcap in Egypt, in a company called Power in Kenya, and another one yet to be announced. Um, uh, so yeah, we've seen different types of payment companies in different parts of the world, and uh, excited to be investing in Africa. My name is Chris Folayam. Previously with Mall for Africa, I was the founder, CEO of CTO, CMO, all, all those things. <laughs> Um, of uh, Mall for Africa, which was pretty much one of the pioneers in allowing the unbanked in Africa to actually purchase items from US, UK, and foreign retailers. Um, now with Interswitch, as many of you may know, Interswitch is one of Africa's first unicorns and uh, a major fintech company that does is known for its switching. Um, capabilities, which is what happens when you swipe your credit card, everything that happens in the background to move money from point A to point B. So um, that's the company I'm with right now and um, uh, exited and sold more for Africa. We definitely have um, the right people here on this panel to discuss all things payments um, on the continent. So maybe over to Elizabeth, um, tell us a little bit, you know, since you've been in this space for the last decade with ASA, what have been some of the kind of uh, key pieces that you've seen evolve over, over that time span? Right. And um, we had a very lively prep call for this oh, chat. Usually I'm sleeping in those prep calls, but this one got lively. Um, you know... It's such an interesting time. So many of the African unicorns are in the payment space. Interswitch was our first infrastructure provider when we entered Nigeria in 2015. It was such a battle in the mm. early days, you know, and every in global investor that we spoke to, and Andrew's right saying, you know, we were raising tiny checks back then, would say, why don't the banks do this? Or when are the banks going to come in and do this? And now we're welcoming the banks as our clients. It took a decade to do that, but we're still at the infancy. And I know that's a very common you know, catchphrase of a lot of people globally, but there's so much more work to be done. And if you look at just remittances, which is one of the driving segments that the payments sector processes, it's grown from 34 billion to almost 90 billion just in the last five, six years. That's mega. So we're not even talking about what is the market size. We're talking about where is the market mm -hmm. growing. And I think you can't ignore that. However, you know, the CEO of Visa last week at the Bloomberg conference was asked, why he loves investing in Africa, and he just pledged another billion into the continent, and he said he's so focused on it, but when the moderator said, at what point will this be a significant point of your revenue, he said at least a decade. Mm. So it, we've already been working a decade. We're already a little tired, except for the young ones. Um, <laughs> but we're just, we, we got another 10, 20 years ahead of us, right? And I think, you know, it's exciting because it's so big. You know, this is like ultra marathon. This isn't a regular marathon. So there's still so much more space to go. I think the one exciting thing that we've seen, and of course, we famously, you know, butted heads in a major way with M-Pesa a long time ago, is that the telcos are no longer the kings. 
Mm. And that's an exciting thing to say. And I say it every morning. <laughs> you know, when we first integrated into InterSwitch to do bank payouts, it was like a breath of fresh air coming from Kenya where everything went through, you know, the overlord. And, you know, now we see those, those, those mobile monies still happening. And, but even remittances, small value remittances are going through banks. That's exciting. That means that we have it, that we've kind of like, people talk about leapfrogging. Well, we've leapfrogged almost mobile money in a lot of ways. And banks are becoming more accessible and the vertical gets closer. So, you know, the best advice to those entering the payment space right now is you need a defendable business model with a defendable revenue stream because we're still evolving. Tectonic plates are still shifting. Just because you're a king right now doesn't mean you'll be a king tomorrow. And so I think it's really important to think about what infrastructure is so exciting right now, but might not be in three years. Inside our company, we always joke about cards. We say, cards might be big right now. You might be seeing all these unicorns with big card revenues, but is car our cards going to be there in five years? When we're seeing fiber connect the continent, when we're seeing cost of internet reduce, what is the future of payments? Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't necessarily think it's going to be owned infrastructure by any companies. It's going to be more accessible. Chris, where do you see some of this growth, right, um, happening on the continent? And what have been kind of some of the takeaways that you've seen within the last decade in terms of how that transformation has happened? So there's been growth in trust and reliability and speed. Um, those are those are the three main ones. I think there's still a lot of growth that needs to happen in those three sectors or areas. But those are required for us to actually move forward. Um, Trust is something that you'll only get when you're able to verify uh, where the money is going, who, is, who it's been sent to. Um, so developing applications and processes that allow that to happen. Then the reliability on speed has increased. I mean, we've gone from you know, five seconds down to two seconds, down to one second now with uh, moving money. And that is very important, mostly when you're working in a society that's used to doing things the old way, which is, you know, give me money now, give me products. So that instant gratification. Um, but being able to do that on a mobile device, um, pretty much as quick as you can, just giving somebody cash, uh, is really important and that's where we are today. So there has been a lot of growth in, in that perspective. So I think between, again, trust, reliability and speed, we've, we've definitely grown um, as a continent in that respect. Mbenke, can you share a little bit in terms of how you feel that this last decade of building that infrastructure has really contributed to the macroeconomic landscape of the continent and, and kind of some of the positive um, impacts of that? Just to, you know, latch on what Chris said, trust, reliability, and speed, I love, I love the framework. I think sort of, um, if you, on the first two prongs, reliability and speed actually has been much better over the last decade. Um, it's not like UK standard or Europe standard, but if you think of, you know, for example, like, you know, places like Nigeria today, you could actually go and have a car transaction where there is no bank for at least like 10 miles, mm -hmm. and the car transaction will go through, right? Like, that's happening today. That wasn't happening 10 years ago. Right. So in terms of reliability and speed, we've actually seen like a leapfrog and things have gotten better. Where I think there's been an issue why we haven't really seen the explosive full benefits is on the trust side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where like a lot of focus kind of has to happen now. I mean, if you look at the US, there's no real time payment. Right. Like, you know, speed in the US is actually quite terrible, mm -hmm. but there is trust. 
Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so actually, you want to have trust more than you want to have speed. People think speed solves trust, but actually really doesn't. Uh, we saw that with the sort of uh, cashless policy with the Central Bank of Nigeria and what that led to. Now, of course, you have an extreme case like Kenya where you have all three, you have one kind of dominant player where everything happens on the same network. But I think we all know like the rest of the continent is not going to be one MPSA in each country, right? It's going to be a little bit more like a fragmentation. So I think on reliability and speed, there's been like leaps and bounds. If we look over the last decade, it's not, we're not quite there yet. Don't get me wrong. But I think where we're really lagging is on the trust side. I think people f- like actually the mental model is like you can, you can, you know, hack your way through reliability and speed. But actually, trust is actually what's like, you know, needed much, much more. And in terms of contributor to, to macroeconomics, I think the jury is still out on that. But we've kind of seen the involvement of payments in, you know, you know, even smaller countries outside of Kenya. Kenya we always talk about Kenya. I think Kenya has a little bit of an anomaly here uh, where, you know, fastest form of uh, growing form of payments in Nigeria is, I think, account to account transfers um, as of today. Right. Like it's, it's just it's unfathomable to think of that sort of five years ago. Yeah. Right. Um, you have, I think, you know, CNP transaction, card not present transactions growing at about 100, you know, 150 percent year on year. Right. So there's all of these, whether it's on mobile money tokenization, whether it's actually sort of like debit cards. Um, so we're seeing lots of people now starting to kind of be counted in formal figures in the way that like couldn't be before. But I think that's just like sort of when act one, act two is when you're going to be able to build on top of that. Um, but, but the contribution to the macroeconomic, I would say, has been significant over the last decade. Definitely, I think, a very good review in terms of the last decade and in terms of where we are today. Um, so kind of just shifting gears in terms of like the current modus, right? Um, Solomon, tell me a little bit more about like what's the current state of payments in Africa right today? Where, where are we seeing, um, you know, some of the shifts happening um, into the future and saying, okay, these are the markets that are really growing, right? We hear Nigeria a lot, but... Clearly, there's other areas that are definitely in that hyper growth when it comes to uh, that, that payments infrastructure. Yeah, so um, just building on what Winger said and also Chris, like the, the trust, reliability, and speed, um, I'm, I'm seeing and we have seen that trust is a major component in terms of shifting the dynamics of payments because people tend to need to start trusting the system, trusting the, the infrastructure um, over time. And one thing that we've also done in MoneyPoint and also other agencies across Africa is they build this trust by creating like distribution networks across but so one of the major problems is um, in Africa there are diverse languages so you don't have like um, you have like formal structured banks like you walk into and they mostly speak like a unified language maybe English language but they'll be building this different clusters of networking networking people and agents you tend to like communicate more in local languages thereby building trust with the local person, the last mile customer down the street. So, yeah, there's been a shift in terms of, I mean, over the last seven to, seven to ten years, there are card payments, and now we are shifting to account payments, and then we are seeing the push towards contactless payment next, mm-hmm. right? So, I, I'm, I'm, we envision that in the next five to ten years, we should be able to adopt, like, more contactless payments um, technologies, and then maybe cards might go down a bit but not completely die because cards cards still like a very a big major driver of revenue in the economy so in the next maybe five to ten years we are seeing a push towards more account to account payments and then contactless payments but all this will only work like we said building trust and then that's that distribution network that 
you build to make sure that the customer can communicate properly in the local dialect and be able to trust the entity that he's paying to or he's paying with, basically. So yeah, that's how I would say it. We talk a lot on um, our prep call about um, payments being really the foundation, right? And now that that foundation has been built, we're seeing a lot more kind of other applications being built on that and and really uh, starting to say, well, we can use that payments infrastructure for other things. We talked about lending and credit. Um, Tell me a little bit more, Elizabeth, in terms of how you're seeing uh, that starting to evolve. Yeah. So a lot of our clients are fintechs or banks that are looking to get into fintech services. And they need cross-border payments, they need foreign exchange, they need treasury. And if we just look at the trend of our clients, which was very heavy on remittances, it's now going into obviously lending, but more exciting as a capital markets fan is all the investment fintechs that are coming in. Because, you know, everybody here has been to enough conferences talking about the bottom of the pyramid and, you know, people who have no access to finance. What about the growing middle? You know, what about these young 20, 30-year-olds who have a little bit of cash, not a ton, want to invest? <laughs> I think he's got a little more than that. <laughs> I mean, we need to Something cash. tells me he's got a little more than that. Um, you know, who who are investing. And, you know, one thing that we, we've always talked about it as uh, is why can't we connect African wealth to the rest of the world? Why are you allowed to invest in a Fidelity product when you're like a knucklehead 21-year-old in, in New York and you can't do the same thing in Lagos? You know, and I was at Bloomberg like two years ago and they were like, oh, it's just speculation. And I'm like, how did you guys make your money? Yeah, how dare you? <laughs> you know, what are you doing in an hour? You know, speculating. <laughs> like, you know, why is why is the African continent not allowed to speculate? You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's another topic to talk about. But I think, you know, seeing the investment is exciting. Now, okay, there's trends and bubbles and everybody got excited about digital currency investment and you see these little pyramid bubbles come across the continent, boom and bust. But... You know, I think what Oscar did at the Ni- Nigerian Stock Exchange for a while and like the local stock exchanges, there's some paper now being offered by some fintechs in Nigeria and elsewhere. You have derivative licensing that's come out with the SEC in Ghana. We're really making efforts there to show more differentiation in the mid-market. And that's exciting because, you know, we love to see our customers grow, but that's where you see the real need for African FX and Africa Africa currency pairs, you know, why don't we have, we have already a lot of Zaf Zoff flow, mm-hmm. you know, why don't we see that grow into just not just a business payment or an invoice, but more of an investment. Uh, a big part of the reason that we haven't seen that go is everybody, there are no forwards, <laughs> not to make this FX nerdy, yeah. but it's a spot market sale globally. I mean, you still just see maybe T7, T5, you know, no one's really doing 30 day, 60 day, 90 yeah. day forward. So how do you think about investment? As markets become more liquid, as more brokers come into the market, as people feel comfortable that they're going to be able to get their money in and out so that payments in that middle layer is super important, people feel more confident that they can invest in another currency. You know, and why I don't agree with Ruto on a lot of things, I was very happy to see the president in Kenya talk about that. Mm. You know, why are we always using the dollar? We need to use the African currency pairs to trade in the continent. And I think that's that's the next big exciting step in the next 10 years. We'll talk a little bit more around that monetary policy and those shifts that are happening. But I want to just double click on, we talked a lot about trust. And, um, you know, from Solomon and Chris' perspective, I know you also talked about KYC. Um, You know, what are some of the components that um, now that you have that, again, that foundation, where you think, especially in KYC, but also kind of credit uh, checks and understanding that user, like what are some of the components that you see being built today? Yeah, I think a lot of 
applications are definitely being built based on on trust. Um, there are biometric um, platforms that are coming up that are self-identifying the individual and then verifying different purchases that they're making. Uh, this, I think, is the foundation for what should end up becoming credit, uh, universal credit scoring across the platform. Um, I know I've spoken to some individuals here who are working on platforms like that, um, but that whole sharing of the credit score across the platform is, is something that is missing in the ecosystem. Um, and it comes down to trust again, I guess, if you think about it. One bank doesn't trust to share its information with another bank because they consider it their own data and they don't want to share it with another bank's data. But hey, guys, if you guys work together, guess what? Now everybody understands that that guy has actually taken out four loans. It's not just one loan that you're looking at. And now if he or she is paying it back over time, you know, now we can increase their credit rating and so on and so forth. So there's institutional trust that's not taking place that needs to take place. And then there's understanding the actual consumer and making sure they are who they say they are. Um, and again, you know, you have things like biometrics that, that can help. Now, if you check the box on those two things, you check the box on the bank, you check the box on the individual, now you have a system that I think would really work and take the continent um, to the next level where people can start getting loans, payments in a much more structured manner. Um, and, it, and that takes you to the next level. If I, as a bank, can say, hey, this guy or this girl um, now has a credit score of 800 out of 900. We can now issue them a loan, a business loan or a business line of credit to do X, Y, and Z, as opposed to you know, going to the bank and I, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. So um, I, I think that's where we need to be, and that's, that's a big component that's can missing. Chris, just a quick question on this. So Chris, you know, we, we need to digitize databases in every market so that we have like a company's house type database in each market, you know, voter registration, electoral cards, drivers, et cetera. That's expensive. We have the AI now to search it, but we don't have anybody willing to invest in that heavy infrastructure lift. And when we see the telcos, they invested in that heavy infrastructure and then they wanted to own it. Sure. So how, what kind of business model or who on planet Earth is going to do that heavy lifting if they don't have proprietary ownership over that? Good question. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. So, um, I think let, let me just help out. I think, um, uh, like you said, <laughs> um, who is going to do that heavy lifting? And I think, to be fair, like um, policies and regulations are supposed to help because the country, the governments are supposed to play a role in ensuring that we have this unified database databases and all the data because Africa, like we've said, has grown in the last 10 years. So, there's petabytes and gigabytes of data all around, scattered across different infrastructure, different databases, different companies, and different walks of life. So I think regulations need to help, right, mm -hmm. to unify these systems, and then everybody can connect into a central source. Because today, if you want to give out credits to guys like me on the streets, you need to be sure of our historical transaction patterns, our credit history, and the likes. And there's no single source, like Chris said earlier. Mm -hmm. Every bank has like silos of data, left, right, center. If the government can help, 
right? Because this that's a huge project that is going to be capital intensive for just one private firm uh, to just embark on. So I think yeah, mo- to answer your question is mostly going to be it will be driven mostly by the government and regulators to oh, help. Oh, you really are young. I, <laughs> can I? Yeah, yeah. I'll, let, I'll let him, I'll let him say. I mean, it's a good thing. You can't wait for it's the government. You can't wait for the government. You're not going to let give that one down. Um, no, I also think like there is, I think to Elizabeth's point, I think there's like space for business model innovation here. The way Chris was describing it is, I think I was talking, you're talking about the telcos. I was talking to somebody from Vodacom yesterday and they do lots of sort of consumer lending and they were saying, you know, we have all of this data. You would mm. think they have a lot of data. They said, we don't have any data outside of how to use the phone. And sometimes that's not useful enough. And on one of our products, our loss rate is about 35%, wow. right? Like if we were able to have access to data that other people have, we could bring that down to 5%. Now that's you know, that's a huge telco, right? So I think like there's business model um, innovation that's gonna happen here. The question is, is it gonna be independent companies or is it gonna be different existing companies coming together? I think, yeah. We already have, you know, look at a place like Nigeria or South Africa, you already have like, if you take one customer, their data file is spread across five companies. Yep. Right, across four companies, and those companies already have APIs, and those companies are already kind of pushing stuff. So, you know, I think there's a there's an opportunity here to not necessarily kind of you know, you know, uh, you know, you know, wait for regulation or kind of hope that you're going to have like FICO score type thing, but actually innovate and API our way right into like yeah, you know these these capabilities. Like if you look at like. Sometimes, uh, let's look at real-time payments and open banking, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're here in London, you work in finance uh, sector, PSD2, you know, was was a thing, right? PSD2, open banking, all of that was a thing, right? And then regulation came into place, and then everybody had to do it, right? Like folks on the continent, without any PSD2, were building open banking capabilities, right? Folks on the continent, without, you know, money points, and without South Africa, were doing the equivalent of real-time payments, Right in Nigeria over inter-switch rails without there being a regulation for real-time payments. Mm-hmm. So we didn't need to wait for the government to say there's got to be real-time yeah. payments. We didn't need to wait for the government to say there's got to be open banking mm-hmm. for people to actually like have all this mono okra and everybody you know, trying, right? So I think there is like there is a real possibility here and a real opportunity actually mm-hmm. that you know the ecosystem itself gets its act together and say, you know, how can we like actually help each other? And like you know, share this information, and it could be yeah. either be a third party opportunity for a third party player, or it could just be something that develops I, as a protocol. I think if you look at again, one, I think we shouldn't kid ourselves. Like the systems that exist in North America and in Europe are far from perfect in that either. You're still sending payslips right yeah. over email for a remortgage and all that nonsense, right? So I think not to kid ourselves that the systems everywhere are very broken in that. And I think to your point, Benga, it is an ecosystem play. And it needs to be ecosystem play. But back to the point of Elizabeth, you cannot be proprietary about that. You cannot be cagey. Everybody needs to come together and recognize that it is for the greater good, for lack of a better word, right, to say that there's going to be better innovation for everyone that happens. Um, is that through, again, like, you know, open API standards um, and aggregator players? Yes, but it probably will take a lot more multiple of those aggregators. I want to shift a little bit to market dynamics, right? Um, and uh, talk uh, specifically around, we've obviously uh, landed ourselves in 2023, which everybody was hoping was going to be like a, you know, road up. And, and instead, I think we're, we're all seeing and feeling um, 
the market dynamics um, that exist today. Um, Benge, talk us through a little bit more in terms of like how that is impacting, um, you know, uh, fundraising on the continent. Um, tell us a little bit more also in terms of how those market dynamics are, you know, affecting maybe some of the potential valuations or exits that, uh, you know, we're seeing. Yeah, so I think if you look at investments on the continent from from that lens, it's a sort of, you know, uh, a tale of two different stories, right? If you look at sort of like very early stage where the market is dominated by local players, angels, uh, people who are on the ground and kind of, you know, uh, understand what's happening in the market and also live in the market, you can see that sort of valuations and investment activity has relatively held, right? Relatively. It hasn't kind of had the jump that it had from 2020, you know, 2020 to 2021. But like there's still a lot of activity happening and things are holding. When you move to the later part of the market, that's where I think there's been a, there's been a lot of challenge. And part of this is because like, you know, um, as soon as you kind of move past Series A, as soon as you get to Series A, you kind of move past that. A lot of the funding dynamics is actually dictated by investors, you know, kind of like outside the continent. I think on the continent, we have two or three, you know, sort of maybe three or four, actually, major Series A, B type investors. And what's happening everywhere is being sort of pushed, right? Risk profit in the U.S. is, um, you know, is up. You know, everybody's kind of pulling back. The expectations are very, very, uh, very, very high. And people are now starting to ask questions around kind of like, you know, unit economics you know what is like the sort of like you know real opportunity here and let's be honest like the fx regimes and the you know performances in nigeria or everywhere actually nigeria kenya egypt haven't really helped so i think you know it's a tale of two stories on the earlier stage of the market we're kind of seeing things hold like a little bit um in the later stage of the market things are like a little bit more difficult the buy is actually much higher first of all the buy is higher everywhere the buy is higher in europe the buy is higher in the u.s but then the buy is obviously then proportionately probably even higher like um, on the continent. So I think that's kind of like what, what we're seeing and people are retreating to fundamentals. I can also say like, you know, even in this market, deals are, get, are, you know, deals are, are getting done, right? I think there was, a, there was a tendency that everybody got carried away sort of from end of 2019 to kind of, you know, beginning of last year. And we also got carried away, I think, on the continent. And, you know, the impact of that is like when you look at payments businesses, right, um, you know, for two, three years, everybody was just looking at everybody. You just come to a pitch session. We've got APIs. This is our revenue. Boom, boom, boom. You know, that's it. Right. Um, and now people are looking at like, what is your contribution you know, margin? Like, what is really the unit economics? How much does it take for you to get $100 of revenue? Mm -hmm. These are questions that, you know, I think some founders, you know, to their own you know, not to kind of, you know, you know, uh, um, really parade or founder, but some founders actually grew up in that environment where you get asked, yeah. right? Like, this is $100 of payment revenue. Where is it from? How much? What's the cost of that? And people are now starting to ask, the, ask those questions. And so the fragmentation that we have in the payments landscape, again, minus places like Kenya, is really starting to kind of favor like smaller players. So I think that's kind of, you know, what's happening. Well, three things. One, tale of two stories. Uh, things are much more tough on sort of the growth, the growth side of things. Two, the buy is higher everywhere, and I think everybody just has to deal with that. But three, with regards to Africa, like, you know, it's gone beyond our Tamis show a nice slide and show a, you know, sort of a McKinsey BCG number. It's gone to like, it's $100 of revenue. You know, what's the, what's the unit economics of that $100 of revenue? Because now you can just look at PayPal on the stock exchange and say, oh, that unit economics is, you know, I don't know, 150 times better and I'm just going to get better price, so I'm not going to pay for it. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, I, and you know, I've been teasing Sullivan, but you know, I'm a big fan of what they what Moneypoint has done, and we've been a client of yours at times. And um, you know, you guys were born when it was saturated with tons of payment companies, so you had to differentiate from the start. I mean, if you look even five years before, there was just a few of us wandering around in the dark. Like there was so many, so much space, it was hard to understand that we where we were going to specialize. When we think about like starting with MFS Africa, Cellulant, and mm -hmm. Azo, we thought we were competitors. Yeah. Ten years later, we were like wildly different businesses. But at the time, it was just payments, you know? And now MoneyPoint is like so specific. And again, you know, that's, I think, to the advantage of move faster, grow faster, understand what your purpose is. And, you know, in sometimes frontier markets, it can get a little murky because there's nothing built yet. Yeah. And I think now we've seen coming out of that saturation period and still growing is really impressive. Yeah. And I think like there's also like in payments, there's this concept of sort of, um, you know, what I call payments plus. Like, so if you, if you go on like sort of look at fintech companies that have listed in the last, say, 10 years. So look at PayPal, look at Bill.com, you know, uh, look at Amex, look at everybody. If you look at the, the um, if you look at the sort of um, percentage of transactional revenue, those numbers are wildly different, mm -hmm. right? So you have somebody on one hand, you have like a PayPal. I think when it went public, the percentage of transactional revenue was about 92%. That number today is 28%, right? And so you start to build other services on top of this, right? Because if there's one thing that is going to be constant to payment founders in the room and people working in payments is that your take rate is going to go down over time. It is going to go down over time. If you go and look at any public company that is payments and look at the effective transaction or unit revenue, it's gone down. Yeah. Amex, when it went public, was 5%. That number is about 2% today. And so really what's, you know, what I think is interesting and what, you know, what, what's happening is you start out as a payment company and you kind of had this but you can't remain just a transactional revenue. You have to be able to layer services on top to actually stay. On the flip side, what we're now seeing as well is companies coming from the other side. Right. Well, like, for example, I think in Build.com's case, when they went public, it was something like, I don't know, 17 percent was transaction revenue. And that's 62 percent now, which is you also have companies that don't start out as payment companies. They start out as commerce companies. They start out as something else and they kind of roll their way back. So I think, you know, the, the whole idea that you can just be a sort of pure payment company and that's kind of what it is. As, as you said, when you talk about the, uh, when you talk about sort of, I hate to use the word ancestors in the space when we talk about it, right? So, so cellular you guys, InterSwitch, inter obviously, uh, 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 all respect InterSwitch. Uh, you know, like, I, I think like that, that's one thing. Like, you can't just be a pure payment company. Payments becomes, um, the well, means to an end to, yeah. to a certain extent. I mean, payments, that's important. Payments across the board, right? I think highly commoditized, especially as more entrants come into the market and more innovation and infrastructure is available. Um, mindful of time, I do want to pivot into kind of some of the other market dynamics that have had some of the adverse effects. Um, uh, due to maybe some of the economic shifts. Uh, Solomon, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, the talent availability. Um, how do you see kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, the brain drain in some of the places affecting being able to kind of access some of that right talent? Yeah, so um, I, I mentioned that because um, today in like Africa, you have a lot of like, like I said, young guys, young guys like me, like migrating, going to other countries, like yeah. looking for in quotes, greener pastures. <laughs> so, but in reality, this brain drain is affecting the talent pool in African countries because the, to speaking to like, in terms of like payment space and all, the hard work of doing the, building these innovations, innovative solutions, building innovations and all requires talent. And then the cost of paying 
these guys that are not in and not local and are not in that country outside of the country is growing exponentially. So, I mean, FX FX regulations are not it's not really helping because you're making you're making revenue in your local currency and then you have to pay somebody in foreign currencies. That that's that's like very difficult. So, I think we need to find a way to like preserve our local talents because that's that's like one of the major challenges that we're having today because a lot of people are leaving local countries but except for companies like money points now we have been able to like break out of that space right and we are able to pay people globally today so i mean i currently work out of uk some people work out of germany um, and different countries and they're able to pay these staff like what they want it, and if money points was not able to do that they would have probably lost like some major talents that would have affected the company's infrastructure and the yeah. building process so I think that's also a very important part. And to help with that, I think like um, um, what's it called FX regulation monetary policy should help so that when you end locally, you can also compete globally with your revenues. Can uh, I just sorry go on? No, no, no. I, know, I was just I was just gonna add to that. First of all, I didn't know that's where all our money was going. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's good to know it's just paying people that live outside Nigeria. But I think you know I think look I think there is I think look there's there's a ecosystem talent problem for sure, Exodus, and that happens multiple places. But there's one thing that is not talked about enough, which is the development of sort of local talent, mm -hmm. right? I was talking to a few founders a year ago and I was talking to them about their talent plans and they told me we plan to hire this and we plan to change and plan to... And I said, what's your attrition plan? Right? You've, the attrition plan's got to be big thing. You've got to front load it. So your engineer doesn't actually cost you $100 if your attrition plan is your attrition is 20%. They cost you 120 even though you're paying them 100, right? You have to build in. It's part of the cost of doing business. And there's also another sort of, you know, again, maybe, you know, as an investor, on the one hand, you can look at things really pessimistic or optimistic. The optimistic view is out of InterSwitch, Money Point was born, in a sense, right? The people that built Money Point came from InterSwitch. Uh, Elizabeth, I think, sort of, uh, uh, there's at least one or two other companies that people from Azza have gone on to build, right? And so I think you also have this thing where, again, if you look at the ecosystem, where companies are actually sort of giving birth to people who are actually going and the network, effect. the network effect is starting to play in. I think we will continue to have sort of short-term tactical shortages. Yeah. Uh, it's impossible for an ecosystem to exist without talent shortage, any kind of existing ecosystem. But what we have to do and what companies need to do is to plan attrition ahead and to plan to train ahead. Money points, in case, like all of the early engineers that came from Money Point, all the poor people were locally homegrown. Yeah. And I remember when we started to look at Money Point, I was talking to a few international investors. They actually didn't believe it was true because they were like, you know, how? Like, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's no engineering outsource team in Ukraine. These are all people locally trained, brought to Money Point, and whatever it is. And so that's an example of the fact that we can do that. Yes, you're going to lose some people. Well, that's a fact of life. Get more people in in the first pay, place. If you pay people global wages, they'll stay. And we, we have this equalized wages across our, our offices, and we talk about this a lot. And we, you know, we really rectified the situation like five, six years ago. We're like, this is not okay. Doing yeah. the same job. I don't care where you live. Of course, there's cost of living, et cetera. We bought a company in just outside of Durban. Couldn't believe what the guy was paying everybody. Correct. We like almost doubled the wages. People were like, oh, this is like life changing. We're like, I'm really sorry. And no one thought about this yeah. before. And I think, you know, last year we talked about, uh, just last week I was talking about Africa is not a low wage continent. We shouldn't yeah. be thinking about it like that. That's bonkers. And when Andela, 
you know, it graduated its first class of $7,000 a month engineers, people were like, huh, how dare they? You know, like, what the hell? That's what an engineer costs. Yep. So I think, you know, we have to think about people will stay where the quality of life is good if you pay them global wages. And just the second quick point is that investors have pressured us to move out of Africa. And I resisted for 10 years and was like forced to move to London. No offense, everybody. But like, <laughs> you know, I really resisted. And all of the Nigerian YC Combinator guys who were in San Francisco raised more money, you know? And it was like a lot of the early stage guys don't live in the West Africa anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's not our fault so much as the investors were like forcing us yeah. to move out of the continent. It's true. Chris, I know you had some thoughts that you've been patiently, <laughs> patiently waiting on. All good. All good. So first one, um, Elizabeth was asking about, focused on me, about um, the infrastructure. I, I think... All the companies need to come together and really talk um, to create that credit type scoring yeah. system um, and yeah, bureau and infrastructure, including ours, because a lot of transactions go through us. If we know who's getting paid, we know your bill is getting paid, you know. So I think infrastructures like ours are key um, to that. One, uh, two, funding. Um, as far as payments go in the payments um, sector. If anybody here is is looking at it, listen to what Benga said. Um, pivot in as many ways as possible because the cost of transactions via payments is just going to keep coming down. It's, yep. it's not going up. It is going to come down and it's going to be as low as you can ever imagine. So you have to think about other ways you can make money. InterSwitch, as big, as massive as we are, Trust me, we are looking at how we can make money everywhere we can. If you go to quickteller.com right now, on the top left-hand corner, you'll see it. It says homes. Like, what the heck are we doing with homes, you know? But the answer is we're trying to help people buy homes, pay their rent, pay electric bills, and all of that stuff. Um, because we, we understand that the cost of, of transactions are, are just coming coming tumbling down three um if you look at the way to keep um employees i agree with what the other panelists have said you should another thing that i think is worth considering is providing your employees with some kind of program that can educate them and keep them within the company Another amazing thing that works is providing them with stock options. Um, I know that many companies are antsy um, about giving away stock options, um, but if you set it up right with vesting periods and all of that set up correctly, you can keep employees working for your company for quite a long time. Um, InterSwitch, um, yes, we have people come and go, but there are a lot of people at InterSwitch that have been there for 18 years. It blo blows my mind. It's like, yeah, 15 years in. I'm like, whoa, that's fantastic um, for for companies. So I, I do think that everyone should consider, again, educating your staff and providing some kind of um, um stock options um, for. If you are thinking about this whole space um, as far as payment goes, just realize that the infrastructure that's being built, as we've mentioned, trust is 
is a tough one. Um, it's probably, in my view, one of the best programs or companies to try and get into right now because there's, as Benga and the other panelists have said, that there is, that's probably, out of the three points I brought up, that's probably the one that's lacking the most. Um, and there's a lot of space for anyone to start a business there and do really, really well. Um, and please think global, don't think local. Um, that's something that, you know, I, too many people just think of ideas um, in, and they have this tunnel vision of their own country. Think global. If you can create a structure that has a global trust aspect to it, even if it's just Africa, that's something Benga will invest in. <laughs> we have around 10 minutes and no panel on payments would be complete if we didn't touch around our regulation and policy. When we think about um, a lot of African countries going through um, government changes, going through policy changes, what are some of the key aspects that um, are happening today where you're saying, this is really positive, this is really great, and then on the contrary as well, this is not that great, and this is going to hurt us long term um, in terms of developing, again, that infrastructure. Elizabeth, what are some of your thoughts there? Conscious, my head of marketing is here. <laughs> I'm going to behave myself <laughs> talking about regulation. Um, it's too slow. It's so slow. And it's not just in Africa, it's everywhere. The speed of innovation, the way like young companies come up and turn around, you can't be waiting three years for a license. Mm -hmm. It's bonkers. And, you know, when we're licensed by the Bank of Spain, by the FCA, by the Bank of Uganda, we have licensing partnerships all around the, uh, the continent. It's just 20% of my workforce is thinking about this all the time. Mm -hmm. Not just applying for licenses, but regulatory reporting, regulatory audits, preparing for regulation, mm -hmm. strategizing on how to do it. It's a huge cost. Then again, we're in a licensed sector. So, you know. It has to be expected and it is a barrier to entry. I mean, that's number one. Number two, I think there has been improvement in the variety of licensing, and that's very exciting. You know, although everything is a little bit slow globally, not just in on the continent, we are seeing differentiation. So, you know, when I started um, in, in Senegal, the Bissau it didn't have any license that wasn't a bank license. They didn't even have a mobile money license. I remember going to a conference where it was like, should we do mobile money? And I'm like, it's 2019. <laughs> you know? So I think that's exciting that that's come mm -hmm. on board. And now you have Wave over there, which replaced Wari. Talk about trust. You know, the biggest trusted network in 10 countries um, fell, collapsed. And you have another one come in. I mean, now we're seeing progress there. So that's mm -hmm. exciting. And I also think that some certain countries like South Africa and the South African Reserve Bank have been leaders since day one. They're not the most lenient, mm -hmm. but they are the most specific. And I'll take specific over lenient almost any day. And even in 2015, SARB had published on digital currencies. Mm -hmm. That's why you saw the proliferation of those kind of payment companies down there. So I think uh, we're seeing more differentiation. It's still slow. Certain countries are more specific than others, um, and there's still just a wide variety and not a lot of like uh, continuity across across regions. Okay. Solomon, what are your thoughts? Monetary policy. You know, yeah. we discussed this a little bit. Um, where are your thoughts at in terms of where it needs to shift towards? What are some of the challenges and opportunities? Yeah. So I mean, for for Nigeria majorly, like I think Nigeria has been one of the countries that has 
be more specific in terms of its monetary policies and then central bank regulations and like because take a look at like earlier this year mm. January with some regulations that had like the whole digital digital payments drive that just skyrocketed transactions up obviously that improved digital adoption over time even if yes it's relaxed a bit but that has also helped like the average guy on the street to start adopting digital payments down there and like um, Elizabeth also said it's slow Right, getting licenses like you need to get a banking license probably take like three to four, five years. I think that can also be improved on as well. And then for payments companies generally, right, um, it's 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 easier to just jump on the like the easy regulatory parts, but there's the hard work of going to the streets, and that's the major part of the work. Going down the streets, making sure that you can meet the locals and doing the businesses and then I think regulations should also help like in Nigeria there's the SANEF the SANEF that has always been existing that that gave like funds to like companies that are trying to do the hard work of going to these guys down there and then that also boosted the mobile money and agency banking business in Nigeria so yeah regulations like should be a bit faster more clear like they should be clearer basically and then help with payment companies to be able to achieve their goals we also talked a little bit about um, uh, policy in order to uh, protect from outside competition, right? Venga, uh, what are your thoughts on that in terms of um, now we have uh, more comp- competition from, you know, uh, Elizabeth, you mentioned uh, Asia, uh, Latin coming in, right? Is there a role for, again, government regulation and policy to play to make sure that what has been built by, uh, you know, the, the kind of founding uh, blocks that that is protected and how how do you go about that well two things so one is you know personally no like i think broadly speaking like we <clears throat> i think there's if you look within the continent like forget outside your sort of d locals and stripes and etc coming in if you just look within fintech expansion intra-africa we already see fintech protectionism in some sense going on, where like the regulators in one country that would allow some companies to do certain things. If a company comes from another country, then they kind of wake up. Like, I think like that just kind of, you know, that stunts growth. Uh, so I think, you know, this whole idea of like, you know, having fintech protectionism, um, in th- there's two ways in terms of maybe protecting the fintech so that like, you know, nobody can come and compete. I think, I think that's not something that would actually stimulate a lot of growth. Um, everybody here talks about the, uh, you know, Stripe acquisition of Paystack as like a win for the ecosystem. Well, if we said like nobody could come and compete, then Stripe wouldn't be able to do that, right? right. So don't forget, it's not just about D-Local coming to process payments next to you. It's about Stripe being able to buy the company. Mm-hmm. It's about being able to do joint partnership on your remittance provider, yeah. right? Like, so, you know, first of all, I think if it's protectionism for the fintechs, um, we think open is probably generally a better way to go. But then you can, you know, have policies to protect the consumers. So I think there's sort of like slightly two different things here. When you think of sort of consumer protection, in a case where you don't have sort of, you know, foreign fintechs coming and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, taking advantage uh, from a price standpoint, from a privacy standpoint of local consumers, I think that's an area that like, you know, there could be like, uh, there could be some sort of, you know, development and policy around. And, and just to kind of round it up, because, you know, I'm, I'm a lot less closer to sort of policy than, than, than everybody here. Um, we, we take like sort of a video view and look at everything over an arc. If you sat in any panel about fintechs, 
whether I was here, whether I was in Latam, India, anything, these comments will fairly be the same. Yeah. They need to be quicker. They need to do that. Like, it's the same everywhere. Yeah. Right? Like, it's, it's not like there is one place. Surely some places are faster than the others. Mm-hmm. But if you ask people in those markets, it's not fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. In our engagement with sort of the, you know, Saab, CBE, CBN, and CBK over the last, you know, 18 months, I think like the, you know, the, the, the approach is generally very positive where you, in all those markets that we've talked about, there is a concession that you can have non-bank players take part in what is considered normally banking activities. Mm-hmm. Payments, lending, whatever. There is like a concession and then the licenses that are being granted. Now, it could be faster, you know, it could be more specific, but we think generally that, you know, I think the regulators are heading in the right direction. Some need to move faster, some need to be a bit more specific. But hey, we have, how many people here work in payments, fintech in Africa? How many people here? How many people here work in banks? There you go. There you go, right? There's way less people working in banks. Here, there's a way, no offense, there's a lot of people working in fintechs, right? And that shows you that there is a lot of positive where a lot of non-banks can actually play in the space. And we think that's going to continue. Yes, let's be faster, let's be more specific. But if you look generally across everything, I think it's heading in the right direction. Uh, sure. That's what I would say. Well, listen, I know we're literally like on t- like just top of the time, but I do want to close us off and Chris leading us in. Looking at the next 10 years, kind of top two things that need to happen and that are non-negotiable um, in terms of the payments landscape in Africa. Next 10 years need to happen. Um, it goes back to, I think, what we started with. It's um, creating, creating some kind of trust platform in order for transactions to happen without any disparity and confusion um, on who's sending money and where money is being sent um, at a speed that is beyond comprehension. Um, then the, uh, the tracking of that, um, the money, I know people are looking at blockchain and all that, but ensuring that the money is tracked and utilized for the purpose that it's supposed to be used for. Um, I think is also part of the whole financial model that governments are trying to put in. Like, you know, if you bring money in here, I have to monitor what the money is being used for, mostly with FX. So that whole cycle and connecting the dots from A to Z um, needs to be brought in with a trust with a trust factor in there. And I also think um, within the next 10 years, we need to start seeing regula- regulatory um, aspects from governments put into play. We've seen what Rwanda has done, Tanzania has done, Zimbabwe has done, Ghana. I mean, these are amazing countries that have looked at financial regulations and said, we want to do something really good about it. We can't do too much without governments you know, literally, I'm not talking about building infrastructure, just government regulations. They need, the government actually needs to take a proactive measure and saying, we want to help um, the fintechs and money movements move faster, easier, much more reliably between, you know, country to country and within the same country. So that's what um, my view on the next 10 years needs to be focused on. Okay, thank you, Solomon, Elizabeth, all 
each one word in terms of what's the top one priority for the next decade? Can I say two words? Three <laughs> two words. words is fine. Okay. Um, IPOs. <laughs> uh, no IPOs, no future. IPOs. Um, and then a request is, can we sort out intra-Africa payments? I, I think, adding to what you said, lending, because we need to start giving out more, uh, more credits to the masses to build wealth. So yeah, lending. I think it's uh, globally great, like global best practice, because we can't rely on it just, you know, the protectionism or because you speak Wolof or because you have a local uncle in Dar es Salaam. It's really going to be about, you know, your business model is a world class. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing world class companies come out of the region and through resilience and through everything else. So I think we're going to see world, world class. Awesome. Well, listen, this has been a great, great panel uh, discussion. Uh, so thank you to all of you. Um, and also, I look forward to uh, seeing you probably in the next year as well and hearing even more progress because I feel everything's accelerating and you should all be very proud of all the work you've done uh, to make that happen. So please, a big round of applause. To hear our latest episodes, please subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit africatechsummit.com for our upcoming events and news.